You are now listening to the November 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Transforming Grace. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. In the last few weeks, we learned about King Ahab. During the time of King Ahab in northern Israel, King Jehoshaphat was reigning over southern Judah. Having considered King Ahab, it makes sense to consider King Jehoshaphat as well. And today, we'll begin our story of King Jehoshaphat. He became king of southern Judah following King Asa. Unlike King Asa, his father, and King Ahab, his contemporary, both of whom had been known to have done wicked things against God, King Jehoshaphat was considered a good king. His records are written in 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles chapters 17 through 20. The Bible says that King Jehoshaphat walked in the way of David and the Lord was with him. Reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 3-5, through 5, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. Jehoshaphat was a king who walked in the way of David and followed God's commandments. One of the very first projects he undertook after he became king exemplified where his heart was. He removed the high places in Judah and the Asherah poles and purged the land of Sodomites and sexual immorality that were left over from the days of his father, King Asa. In the third year of his reign, King Jehoshaphat sent his officials, Levites, and priests to teach the law of the Lord to his people. He sent five officials, nine Levites, and two priests to all the cities of Judah, whose mission was to teach the law of the Lord. His intent was to fill with God's word the void left after removing the idols in high places. As King Jehoshaphat made an effort to make all of Judah return to God's word, God had blessed him. He instilled fear in all the lands surrounding Judah. They did not dare to go to war against King Jehoshaphat. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 10. Jehoshaphat grew stronger. He built new fortresses and repaired the old fortresses. He built additional cities to store ample supplies. He stationed many soldiers in Jerusalem. The Philistines and many other surrounding countries brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, seeking favor and politically friendly relations. However, like any human being, he also made a foolish choice. It involved his contemporary to the north, King Ahab. Apparently, King Jehoshaphat had this idea 
of a unified Israel, so he was motivated to have an amicable relationship with his northern brothers and of their king. Of course, Ahab wanted to be on good terms with an economically wealthier and militarily stronger Judah. Even though Jehoshaphat did good deeds, he made a foolish choice by forging an alliance with Ahab. This foolish decision is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles chapter 18. King Jehoshaphat agreed to have his first son, Jehoram, marry King Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. This alliance may have appeared to suit King Jehoshaphat's personal political agenda. It was, however, not the right choice spiritually in the view of God's kingdom. Because of this alliance, Jehoshaphat's people eventually got exposed to various idols in northern Israel and they brought them to southern Judah. They ended up worshiping these idols rather than God. Later, Athaliah, Ahab's daughter, married to Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, attempted to kill everyone in the royal family in Judah to secure the throne in Judah for herself. Of course, at the time, Jehoshaphat had no idea about these eventualities, but God knew and did not approve of this foolish choice, motivated by a political ambition. A few years after forming the alliance, King Ahab proposed to King Jehoshaphat that they should attack Ramoth-Gilead together. That was a piece of land that King Ahab wanted to take back from Aram. Being a sensible king, Jehoshaphat told King Ahab that they should seek the word of the Lord before going into battle. In response, King Ahab gathered 400 prophets and asked whether to go to war to take back Ramoth-Gilead. The prophets were upbeat about the war and prophesied, gaining victory. However, even after hearing the positive prophecy from the prophets, King Jehoshaphat was still being careful. He asked if there was another prophet. King Ahab said there was a prophet named Micaiah. However, he always prophesied bad things against King Ahab. So King Ahab would be loath to bring him in to get his prophecy. Nonetheless, Jehoshaphat insisted, and King Ahab reluctantly ordered Micaiah to come. Prophet Micaiah came before King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab and delivered to them the word of the Lord. This is what 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 16 says. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. It sounds like a riddle, but this is the meaning of the prophet's word. Eventually, Israel will be like one without a shepherd. When the prophet said that the people would return to their house in peace, it meant that even if the battle should start, they would forfeit the battle and return to their own house. In other words, it was better to return to their houses alive rather than to die in the battle. So the Israelite army would return to their houses and the battle would end in defeat. This was the prophecy of Micaiah the prophet. He even prophesied what would happen leading up to Ahab's death. 
God would send an angel to intervene so that all the prophets would tell lies instead of the truth to Ahab. They would entice Ahab to go into battle and eventually make him die in the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. Prophet Micaiah told King Ahab that the Lord who was sovereign over everything allowed this to happen and the Lord proclaimed a disaster against him. King Ahab then became so angry that he put the prophet in prison and ordered the guards to feed him sparingly only with bread and water until he returned safely. King Ahab wanted to make him suffer and keep him barely alive until he returned so he could gloat over him. Little did he know he would meet his end just as the prophet had spoken. What decision did King Jehoshaphat make after seeing all this? Unfortunately, his political agenda got the best of him. King Jehoshaphat didn't heed the word of Prophet Micaiah. He went up to Ramoth-Gilead to go into battle along with King Ahab. And here's the kicker. Ahab suggested to Jehoshaphat that he would take off his royal robe and disguise himself so as not to appear as king when going into battle. He said only Jehoshaphat should wear the royal robe. King Jehoshaphat went into the battle wearing his royal robe. What would happen to him? We'll find out next time on Story of Kings. Stay tuned, and until then, goodbye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is The Secret of Contentment, Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. This is the last verse from Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. One of the most abused verses in all of the Bible. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many inspirational speeches in sports have revolved around this verse? Only to lead to defeat. Like this is me, a four foot nothing runt in eighth grade, trying to dunk a basketball, believing I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet despite my best efforts to dunk the basketball, apparently that is not what all things in Philippians chapter four means. Which is why with any verse in the Bible, we always need to look at that verse within its context. So what does, so Philippians 4.13, what does all things refer to in this passage? And the answer is clear in context. All things refers to being brought low and abounding. Paul's saying, I can be brought low through him who strengthens me, and I can abound through him who strengthens me. I can face plenty, and I can face hunger through him who strengthens me. I can face abundance, and I can face need through him who strengthens me. I can do all things, brought low, abound, face plenty, hunger, face abundance, need through Jesus who strengthens me. So contentment does not come from independence, but from total dependence on Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. And we said this week we were going to see not just what contentment is, that was part one, part two, how do we get it? So how do we learn it? Paul uses that word twice. I've learned this. I've learned this. Then he says in verse 13, I can do this. So how, how do we learn this? How do we do this? How do we experience contentment? So we've established the first part. What contentment is, the sweet inward state, perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength in every moment, regardless of circumstances. We want that, so how do we get it? And in answer to that question, I want to show you today three steps that flow from one truth. So if you're taking notes, we're gonna start with one truth, then based on that truth, I wanna give you three practical steps to learn this secret, to get it, to do it, to experience this secret in your life. So here's the truth, I would encourage you to write it down, then I wanna show it to you in God's word. Here's the truth. Contentment in life comes from Finding supreme treasure in Jesus. That's the truth. Contentment in life comes from finding supreme treasure in Jesus. Now let me explain what I mean by supreme treasure in Jesus. So I, I mentioned last week that in verse 13, so I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that word through in this verse could be translated and is normally translated in. So I can do all things in Jesus who strengthens me. So I want us to think about 
who Paul is talking about here, who the Bible is talking about, who is the him that brings this secret of contentment? What is it about him, Jesus, that makes it possible to have contentment in life? And in answer to that question, I just want to give real quick six pictures of who Jesus is according to the book of Philippians. So this is kind of like bonus content that we talked about last week. You might write these down. We're going to go through them super fast. But I just want to ask, who is the him that makes contentment possible? Who is Jesus based on what the book of Philippians is teaching and really the rest of the Bible? Well, number one, so we're going to go through all these six. One, Jesus is the fountain of never-ending joy. We've already seen this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There is always everlasting, never-ending joy that's found where? In the Lord, in Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, in Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. We read it just a second ago. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So there's a joy to be found in Jesus. This is where we remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 11. He said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy as a result may be full. My joy in you means full joy for you. John chapter 15, verse 11. In the very next chapter in John, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how they will experience sorrow in this world, how we will experience sorrow in this world. And Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into what? Into joy. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And listen to this, no one will take your joy from you. No one, nothing can take away the joy that Jesus gives to you. Jesus is the fountain of never-ending joy. Second, Jesus is the well of otherworldly peace. We've seen this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding otherworldly will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, you will have this kind of peace. This is exactly what Jesus says to his disciples when he's talking with them about difficulties in the world in John 14, 27. He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, otherworldly. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then he says, right after that, John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is the well of otherworldly peace in a world of tribulation and trial. Number three, Jesus is the giver of unexplainable gentleness. It's what we saw in Philippians chapter four, verse five, let your reasonableness, we 
saw how that could be translated gentleness, be known to everyone, even in the face of injustice like Paul was facing in prison for proclaiming the gospel. These are Jesus' famous words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in me. What a picture. Jesus is the giver of unexplainable gentleness. Fourth, Jesus is the source of supernatural strength. This is our verse, Philippians chapter four, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or check out this other passage where Paul talks about contentment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses nine and 10, Paul talks about difficulties he has walked through and is walking through. And he says, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, same word, may rest upon me, the power of Christ. And he says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. There's that word content. With weaknesses, I'm content. With insults, I'm content. With hardships, I'm content. With persecutions, I'm content. With calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am what? I'm strong. Why? Because I have the power of Christ resting upon me. So when I'm weak, I am strong. Jesus is the source of supernatural strength in the midst of suffering. Then two more pictures of who Jesus is in Philippians and the rest of the Bible. Number five, I guess, this is Jesus is the definition of true love. Paul's description of Jesus in Philippians chapter two is one of the most majestic anywhere in the Bible. When he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who? So here's the who. He's the one who was in the form of God yet did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me make sure to explain what this passage means, particularly those of you who are listening right now who may not have yet put your faith in Jesus. Bible teaches that we have all sinned against God and all turned aside from God's ways to our own ways. And we all deserve death. Not just physical death, but eternal death in judgment for our sin against God. But the good news of the Bible is that God has come to us. It's what Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 are teaching. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus has died on a cross to pay the price for our sins against God so that anyone anywhere who trusts in Jesus and his love for us will be forgiven of all of our sins and restored to relationship with God for eternal life. When you realize him who is in you, you are in him. You're united with him. So now let's get in the practical. 
So three steps then to get this contentment in your life. Three steps to get this sweet inward state of perpetual joy, peace, gentleness, and strength in every moment regardless of your circumstances. Once you realize this truth that contentment in life comes from finding supreme treasure in Jesus, then what do you do? So step one, to get contentment, to get it. One, believe that Jesus is better than the best things this world has to offer. This is exactly what Paul says back in Philippians chapter three. You've got to see this. So back in Philippians chapter three, Paul makes a list of the good things he had in this world. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter three, verses five through six. Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So let's just, let's just think about the things Paul just mentioned here. We'll list them out. So what, what are the good things that Paul's talking about here? Start with the beginning. So circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is talking here about his strong family heritage. So let's, let's write that down. We'll write that over here. All right, family heritage. Like when Paul talks about his family, he is a proud man because his roots were strong, born not just into the people of Israel, but the tribe of Benjamin, from which the first king of Israel came, whose name, by the way, was Saul, which is what Paul's parents originally named him. If you want good family heritage, you can't beat Paul. And not just family heritage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews in the upper echelon of Jewish life with all that entailed. So let's add social status to what Paul had. Paul was at the pinnacle of the Jewish, Jewish social structure. Then he writes, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, we hear Pharisee, particularly in light of what we're reading through the Gospels right now, and we might have negative stereotypes, but remember, in the first century, Pharisees were extremely well-respected for knowing God's word in the Old Testament and interpreting it and teaching it. So what Paul's saying right here, he's saying, I had biblical knowledge like few other people. Biblical knowledge. He knew God's word. And not just biblical knowledge, like in his head. He said, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So Paul was not superficial in his faith. He had serious devotion to God. So let's put that. Religious devotion. This is the list of things Paul is giving us here. I had total religious devotion, serious in my devotion to God. And on top of all that, so one more thing, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, Paul had a clean, moral lifestyle. Like he was a good man who did good things, respectable, honorable, 
by all accounts in the eyes of people around him. Now, based on Philippians 3, 5 to 6, look at this list of Paul things, of things Paul just said, and let's just ask, what do all those things have in common? Those are all good things, right? But then, listen to what Paul says next in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. In other words, all these good things in the world, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Loss. What all these good things mount up to are loss for the sake of Christ. And just in case we don't get it the first time, he says it again. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything. That's an all-encompassing word. Everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he says it a third time. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, we got to feel the weight of that word. So that word for rubbish is literally dung. Like you can think of other words that would be inappropriate to use in a sermon. And that's the way this word just jumped off the pages in scripture. That's what Paul just said. He just took all the good things in his life in this world and he called them rubbish compared to gaining Christ and being found in him. He said, I gladly lose, loss, 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 all these things, everything, all this gain in order to know Jesus for his sake, for the sake of Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in him. So for Paul, let's come back to this. It's almost like he draws out two columns on a piece of paper. And on the left, so let's make this in the columns right here. On the left, he lists all the best things this world has to offer. And above that list, he writes the word loss over them. And then in the column on the right, he writes Jesus. And above that column, on top of Jesus, he writes gain. Because he really believes that the best things of this world all these things over here are like dung in comparison to Jesus. And that is a very different way to think. That is a very different way to live. And that, I would submit, is a very different Christianity than the one that is so often practiced in our culture. And this is so dangerous. Here's the deal. Follow this. You can have all these things on the left and more. All these things in this world and still not have Jesus. You say, what does this have to do with contentment? This has everything to do with contentment. Contentment starts with believing that Jesus is better than the best things this world has to offer. That Jesus is the fountain of never-ending joy. Not this or that person or this or that thing in this world. 
Contentment starts with believing that Jesus is the well of otherworldly peace in a way that no one, nothing in this world can come close to. Starts with believing, contentment starts with believing that Jesus is the giver of unexplainable gentleness and the source of supernatural strength and the definition of love and the author of life and nothing in this world compares. Even the best things of this world combined do not compare with him because Jesus is better. And when you believe this, oh, follow this, when you realize who he is and when you realize who you have in him, then you are no longer dependent on the things of this world for joy because you have never ending joy in him. Make the connection. You are no longer dependent on circumstances in this world for peace because you have otherworldly peace in him. Regardless of what circumstances you are facing, you have unexplainable gentleness and supernatural strength and true love and eternal life in Jesus. So believe this, believe that Jesus is better than the best things this world has to offer. And then, so now step two, so let's keep going, getting more practical here. Step two toward learning, getting, experiencing contentment. Then, step two, when you face abundance, exalt Jesus as the giver of that abundance. When you face abundance in this world, see Jesus as the giver. Worship Jesus. Love Jesus as the giver of that abundance. Isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about the secret of contentment, he describes how can you be content when you face abundance? Like we think, well, when I have abundance, of course I'm content because I have these things. But remember, as long as your so-called contentment is found in your abundance, then it is not contentment. You're like the child who cried until they got what they wanted and they were content. But that's not true contentment because that kind of contentment is dependent on outside circumstances. It's based on getting what you want or what you think you need. Paul is talking here, the Bible's talking about, about the secret of having abundance, but not finding contentment in your abundance. Remember, Paul told the Philippian Christians, like, I'm thankful for the gift that you sent me here in prison, but I was content without the gift. And I'm content with the gift. That's what he said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. He said, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, not in your gift. My rejoicing was in the Lord. Paul says this because he knows that any good gift ultimately comes from the Lord, comes from God. So the key to contentment when you face abundance is exalting Jesus as the one who gives that abundance. The key is never ultimately rejoicing in the gift, but always ultimately rejoicing in the giver. And see it, this is where idolatry comes in. Every one of us, myself included, we are all prone to exalt the gift and ignore the giver. It's the essence of idolatry to exalt good things while ignoring the giver of those good things. And contentment is found not in looking to these things, 
for peace and joy and gentleness and strength and life and love, but looking to him as the one who gives these things, as the well of otherworldly peace and the fountain of never-ending joy and all these things we've seen. So yes, for me to say, I love my wife, but she is not my life and my ultimate love. Jesus who gave her to me, he is my life. He is my ultimate love. Yes, I love my kids, but my life does not revolve around them. My life revolves around him who gave my kids to me. Yes, I'm thankful for all kinds of good things in this world, but I do not find my joy or my peace in them. I find never-ending joy and otherworldly peace in the one who gives these good things to me. Do you want contentment? Then when you face abundance, make sure to guard your heart by exalting Jesus as the giver, not the gifts. And then, so... Third step toward learning, getting, experiencing contentment. Then when you face need, cling to Jesus as the goal. When you face need, cling to Jesus as the goal. And you might say, what does that mean? Cling to Jesus as the goal. And what I mean is exactly what Paul said in Philippians chapter three that we saw earlier. Listen to those verses again. You tell me, what, what is Paul's goal according to these verses? We'll start with the fresh. What's his goal? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, for whose sake? For Christ's sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that, so that's purpose clause. Why, Paul, why do you count all the best things this world has offered to you as rubbish, as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him? What's Paul's goal? His goal is to gain Christ, to know Christ. That is his clear goal. You know what's interesting? Because earlier in this book, Paul used similar language in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, when he talks about suffering, when he talks about being in need. Listen to this verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, so that's same language we saw over here, for the sake of Christ, for his sake, he's using it in Philippians chapter 1, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer, and here he says it again, for his sake. Let's think about what that verse just said. It has been granted to you. Granted. It's like a gift. That's right. Like when you're granted something, you're given a gift. So for the sake of Christ, it's been granted to you. You should not only believe in him, so believing in Jesus, that's a gift. Yes, absolutely, that's a gift. Believing in Jesus, experiencing eternal life in him, yes, that's a gift. But then not only that, not only believing in him, so there's another gift. Even more than just believing in him, you're like, oh, great, another gift. 
Next gift is, but also to suffer for his sake. At which point we're like, what kind of gift is that? You ever receive a gift that you didn't ask for or didn't want? Suffering is something, the gift that is granted to you. So how in the world can you see suffering as a gift? Follow with me real close because this is the heart of contentment. Think about what suffering is. Suffering is when the things that we want, the things that we love, and things that we enjoy, oftentimes really good things, are taken away from us. Oh, when people, family, friends, when we lose somebody we love, we suffer. Today just so happens to be the anniversary of my dad's sudden heart attack and death years ago. I so wish my dad was still here. Like, there's so many things I would love to talk to him about. None of my kids ever got to meet him. Like, suffering is when you lose someone you love through death, maybe through divorce, when a spouse is no longer there, or a spouse no longer loves. We suffer. Suffering is when we lose health, when we're struck with disease, physical pain, we suffer. Maybe financial crisis, when we lose money, or we lose a job, we suffer. There's so many different examples we could list. When good things are taken away, we suffer. But go back to what we talked about earlier. When you have already taken all the best things this world has to offer and you've put them in a column over here under loss and you've put Jesus in a column under gain, then when these good things and other things like them are taken from you, it's not easy. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying, and the Bible's not saying that suffering is easy. You heard Larissa say this earlier, like losing good, great things in this world, people we love, our health, on and on. It's not easy. The pain is real and the tears are many. But when Jesus is your life and these things are taken away from you, then in the end, suffering, the taking away of these things only drives you more to who? To Jesus. And when Jesus is your goal, then suffering becomes a gift. Let me say that again. When Jesus is your goal, then suffering becomes a gift. Then suffering and your perspective on it is totally different. It's a gift. This is such a different way to look at life. Some would say this is a crazy way to look at life. I think about Paul writing this from prison. Think about a conversation I once had with a brother in Christ who had been imprisoned in another country for proclaiming the gospel, just like Paul had. And this brother shared with me how in prison he had nowhere else to turn. And as a result, prison, he talked about how prison made him a man of prayer and made him a man who loved God's word more than he ever did before. Prison made him a man of faith, to trust in God in deeper ways than he ever had before. Prison caused him to cling to Jesus in a way that he had never experienced before. And in the end, so now do you see the gift here? 
Suffering becomes a gift when Jesus is your goal. And if you think it's crazy to say suffering is a gift, like think about the verse we read earlier where Paul took it to a whole other level saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Dying is gain? How do you say that? That dying is good? Well, think about what we've seen. When everything, even the best things in this world, are in one column loss, Jesus is in one column gain, and everything is taken from you. Everything, like your family, your spouse, your children, your possessions, your job, your health, your very breath. When it's all gone, then what will you have? You will have Jesus like you've never had him before. You will have Jesus more fully and more finally and more perfectly than you've ever dreamed. Which means that when, when Jesus is your goal, then suffering becomes a gift and dying becomes gain. <laughs> Don't miss, yes, on this day years ago, my dad breathed his last breath all of a sudden, like it took 60 seconds. But at that moment, he experienced, when his breath was gone and his heart stopped beating, he experienced never-ending joy and otherworldly peace and unexplainable gentleness and supernatural strength over the grave and true love and eternal life in ways he had never experienced before. Do you see it? Like Jesus has taken the worst thing that could happen to any one of us, death, and he has turned it into the best thing that will happen to every one of us. So now we get it, right? I, at least I hope we get it. Like, do you want contentment in life? Then contentment in life comes from finding supreme treasure in Jesus. Contentment in life comes when you believe that Jesus is better than the best things in this world. In such a way that when you have good things, you praise Jesus as the giver of those good things. In such a way that when those good things are gone, you cling to Jesus as the goal because you are content in him. So I ask you, have you trusted in Jesus as your supreme treasure? Because the answer to that question will determine your contentment in life forever. Will you bow your heads with me? I just want to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes wherever you're sitting right now, in your home, just wherever you might be in this room. And I just ask you where you're sitting right now. Have, have you trusted in Jesus as your supreme treasure? Is Jesus your life? Just answer that question honestly before God. If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you just to say to God right now, God, I want to trust in Jesus as my life. I want to trust in Jesus in all these ways that we see in your word. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus to say, today, oh God, I trust in Jesus to forgive me my sins through what he did on the cross, to give me life based on his resurrection from the grave. Today I put all my hope and all my trust in Jesus as my savior and my Lord, Lord of my life. 
I invite you, put your trust in Jesus. And for all who have, for all who say, I've put my trust in Jesus, but I've lost sight of Jesus as my supreme treasure. To just pray right now and to say, Jesus, help me to trust you like this. Help me to see you like this. To see you, to believe that you are better than the best things this world has to offer. And just in prayer right now, think about all the good things in your life and see Jesus behind every single one of those good things. Praise and adore and worship him as the giver and as you walk through difficulties and you think about things that are not going as planned right now and ways you're facing need, hunger being brought low, just struggling in this way or that way, just lay those things before Jesus and say, you are my goal. I want to know you. I want to cling to you. I want to trust in you. I want to experience your joy and your peace and your gentleness and your strength and your life and your love in deeper ways than I ever have. Oh, Jesus, we praise you as the one who is better than the best things this world has to offer, the one who gives good things. And we say together as your people today, you are our goal. We want to know you. We want to glorify you. And we trust that as we do, we will experience all of these things in you. We will experience joy and peace and gentleness and strength and life and love. And ultimately, we will experience contentment in you. God, I pray that over every single person listening right now. I pray for your contentment in their lives as they find supreme treasure in you. Jesus' name we pray. For his sake we pray. Amen.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Following is the program, Transforming Grace. Hi, I'm Leslie Martin. I would like to thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for asking me to share my book, Transforming Grace, with you. It is my prayer that you will gain a better understanding of God's love and grace as we go through this simple book together in these next few weeks. Jesus identified the Holy Spirit as the one who is the river of living water. In other words, the Holy Spirit, God himself, will indwell us. He will flow from our life, giving us life, refreshing us, and flowing out to refresh others. This is the living water that Jesus was referring to as he spoke to the Samaritan woman. I will give you this living water, this life-giving flowing out of your innermost being kind of water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, John chapter 4, verse 11. She didn't understand what Jesus meant by living water. She was still thinking of the water in the well. She continued, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you give that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it of himself and his sons and his cattle, are you? John 4, verses 11 and 12. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of the Jews and the Samaritans. Centuries before this conversation, Jacob dug the well where the woman and Jesus met. As wonderful a blessing as Jacob's well was to the people, it wasn't living water. It wasn't the flowing springs of life-giving, gushing water that come from God. It was only a well. That's all that any man, no matter how great a man he can be, can do. Dig a well. You may have a wonderful spiritual heritage. There may be spiritual wells that have been dug for you by spiritual people, but it's not enough. Perhaps your parents, grandparents, teachers, or some important person in your life gave you a cup of water and showed you a well. However, you're still spiritually dry. We can't survive on the wonderful people in our lives. Their relationship with God will not sustain us. We need to have the life-giving water from Jesus himself. The relationship God wants to have with us is a personal relationship between us and him. This relationship is not something that can be passed down to us. We don't have a personal relationship with Jesus because someone that we love is close to him. 
We can't rub shoulders with them and hope it's going to rub off on us. That's not enough. God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. Jesus is greater than our father Jacob, greater than those wonderful, precious people that God has used to dig wells and bring water to us. Jesus is greater, and he wants us to stop depending on our spiritual heritage and go right to him, the source. He wants to give us a personal connection with the fountain of living water and not rely on a spirituality that we've gotten vicariously through someone else. Go right to the source and get it right from Jesus. The woman went on to say, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. John 4, verses 12 and 13. If you're drinking from the wells of other people, even if they are great wells dug by a mighty person of God, you're going to get thirsty again. You're going to run out. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, Jesus said. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband, John 4, verses 13 through 17. The woman was beginning to feel the conviction of her sin, so she reframed the truth. She wasn't willing to be completely honest about her situation. It was true that she didn't presently have a husband, but only a half-truth. Isn't that the way of human nature when the Lord starts to get a hold of us? We're tempted to hedge the truth, aren't we? We may admit a part of the truth, but we're afraid to see the whole truth because we may think God will reject us. The woman had been rejected by everyone. That's why she came at noon to draw water. No one else would be there at that time of day. She had been rejected. She wasn't about to be rejected again. She was going to protect herself. A lot of us have experienced rejection, and as a result, we build walls around ourselves to protect ourselves from further pain. What happens when we build those walls? In time, the walls get so thick and high that we're isolated, and the pain of being behind those walls is even worse than the pain of being rejected by others. God wants to come and help us tear down our walls. Yes, we may get rejected by some people, but we will never be rejected by the Lord. He's not ever going to turn his back on us and walk away. He encourages us, I will never leave you or forsake you. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He will never reject us. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. John 4, 17 and 18. Jesus compassionately met the woman at the point of her fear of disclosure. He didn't condemn her, but showed great grace as he helped her transition to a place of complete honesty. He didn't criticize her, but simply affirmed the portion of truth she had shared with him. 
He said, you have spoken the truth. Then he went ahead and revealed the rest of her story. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet, John 4.19. The woman was given spiritual insight at that moment. She understood that the person she was talking to was not an ordinary person because he could look beyond what she said and know the details of her life. He knew her. Because she realized he was a prophet, she opened up and asked the questions that had been filling her heart. How can I worship God? How can I get close to God? I'm confused. Our fathers say one thing, the Jews say another, and I feel so far away from God. I'm probably a hopeless case anyway. The cry of her heart was, I want to worship God. I want to be close to God. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. John 4, 19-22 The Samaritans didn't know all the truth because they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have the rest of the Old Testament, the prophetic writings, the historical books, the Psalms, only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus said, You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. John four twenty two and 23. This is amazing. Jesus told her, Listen, I know your heart. You want to be close to God. You want to worship God. God is already looking for you. He's seeking you. You don't need to worship in a holy place because God is standing right in front of you. The hour has come that worshiping God is a matter of the heart. You have a holy temple of God in your heart, and you can worship God in spirit and in truth. We worship with the Word of God through the Holy Spirit of God. True worship is not something that we do in a special building, a holy location, or a temple. We who believe in Jesus are the temple of God. We worship God all the time. Everywhere we go, we take the temple with us because God indwells us. If you take a trip to Israel, God is not closer there than he is right where you live. Even though you may feel like you are closer to God if you go to the top of a mountain, God is still with you in the valley. God is with us everywhere. We worship in spirit and in truth. The time of meeting God in a special holy temple has passed. God is spirit, and those who worship him do not have to worship him in holy places, only in spirit and truth. Grace reveals the truth about how to worship God. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us, John 4, 25. What she actually was saying was, are you the Messiah? Jesus then gave her a stupendous,
stupendous revelation of himself. It was a revelation that, as we have already said, had not been given to anyone else on the earth living at that time. He said to her, I who speak to you am he. The English translation of Jesus' words is not completely adequate. It's even more powerful if you literally translate the original Greek. In a literal translation, Jesus said, It is I am who speaks to you. Now, she would have known who I am was because that's the name that God gave when he revealed himself to her ancestor Moses at the burning bush. She was acquainted with that name for God. I am that I am. Jesus said, it is I am who speaks to you. He proclaimed himself as the I am. I am God. I am Almighty God. I am the one at the burning bush. I am the one who led your ancestors out of slavery, bondage, oppression, and rejection into abundance to the river of living water and to the promised land. It is I am who speaks to you. I can't even imagine what her response must have been. Here was the I am, that consuming fire that did not consume the burning bush, the one before whom Moses, that man of God, had to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. In contrast, here she was, a sinful, despised Samaritan woman standing before the great I am of eternity. Grace reveals that Jesus is God, but he is not out to destroy us. He is out to bless us. What a privilege it has been sharing my book, Transforming Grace, with you. I hope that you have enjoyed our time together as God has revealed his unending grace through his scripture and promises to us. I want to again thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for asking me to be a part of their special ministry that continues to reach people with the gospel message around the world. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.